Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Samuel 8, um, and we'll get uh, started. Um, actually, we're going to be on 2 Samuel 7. Kyle, thank you uh, for reminding us that we all are broken people, and we live in a broken world, and I know that everyone in the room here has a story. A long story, and a story this week, and a story this morning, and we are praising Jesus that he is faithful in the middle of our struggles and our brokenness and our life its own self, as we say, great is thy faithfulness, as we sang this morning in the 8 o'clock service. And if you haven't been to hear Lamentations 3 yet, go uh, and get some divine perspective at 11 o'clock. So we'll be opening 2 Samuel 7 today, the great covenant that God made with David. One of my favorite Bible commentators is a guy named Robert Deffenbaugh. And he illustrates today's lesson with his story. How many of you have seen the movie Crocodile Dundee? Way back in the day, right? One of my favorite scenes in that show is when Dundee's walking down uh, New York City at night with his girlfriend and there's a gang of thugs that come up and demand money and one of these thugs brandishes a knife, right, at Dundee. And Dundee says, "Uh, that's not a knife. This is a knife. And he pulls out a knife the size of a machata, a short sword, you know, it's probably got an 18-inch blade. And of course, um, the thugs are terrified because it makes their knife look like a pin knife you keep on a keychain. And so they run away. And that scene kind of reminds me of today's text. In today's text, David has completed the palace complex, and he sees God's ark resting in a tent with curtains, and so he plans to build the house that is suitable for God. And God sees David's plans, and you can almost hear God saying, David, that's not a house. This is a house, right? So this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, is probably one of the most important in the entire Old Testament. It contains what is known as the Davidic covenant, which promises that the Messiah will be born from David's family. And that David's family, through the Messiah, will literally reign on the throne for all eternity. So this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, divides into two sections pretty neatly. The first 17 verses record God's covenant with David, what he says. And then verses 18 to 29 record David's response to the covenant that God gave him. So in this chapter, God in the first 18, 17 verses reveals his grace. And in the last few verses, David demonstrates his gratitude. Let's pick up the narrative at verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So just contextually, right now the nation is unified. They have one king, David, the north and the southern tribes are all one nation state. 
The house of the uh, Ark of the Covenant is housed, of course, in Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation. David is living in his palace complex, and the nation's at peace. There's no warfare. All of their former enemies have either been beaten or have made peace with David. And it seems when you read this that David's completed his palace complex because he refers to his house of cedar. And the cedar trees that he built the house with came from Lebanon, which is just north of Israel. Back in that era, there was, uh, I don't know whether there was more rainfall, but they certainly hadn't lumbered that whole area. If you've been anywhere near Lebanon and Israel today, you realize there's not a lot of trees. It's mostly rocks. But in the last several decades, the Israelis have literally planted millions, millions literally of trees. So they're reforesting their nation, which is a marvelous thing. But what's interesting here is these trees came from Lebanon and they came from a king called Hiram. And for a cross-reference, 1 Chronicles 14 tells us that Hiram actually helped David build his palace, sent him workmen as well as uh, lumber, etc., etc. Hiram reigned from about 980 B.C. to 947 B.C., so he actually also helped Solomon build the temple complex during Solomon's reign. So David, at this point in time, has been on the throne about 30 years. He was literally on the throne 30 years when Hiram came to power. So this chapter probably takes place in the last decade of David's life, about 10 years after his adultery with Bathsheba. If that's true, then David's about 60 years old. Now, it's very easy in Scripture when you read a chapter and you believe that because that chapter comes before another chapter, the events of that chapter actually occurred before the events of the later chapter. So you assume... 2 Samuel 7 obviously takes place before 2 Samuel 11, which records David's adultery with Bathsheba. Just because it shows up in an earlier chapter doesn't mean it showed up earlier in chronology. Not all of the chapters are chronological in Scripture, clearly. Some Bible uh, books are, but many, many are not. So David's living in his palace complex, and he talks to his close confidant, Nathan. Nathan's probably the closest advisor David has, and God has spoken to David through Nathan more than any other prophet. Nathan is the prophet that 10 years before the events of this chapter confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba. And David has observed that there's kind of an anomaly going on. He's an earthly king, and he's living in this luxurious stone palace, you know, paneled with cedar, which is obviously luxury, the ark of the God of the glory of heaven and earth is living in a tent. And he says, this doesn't make sense. I'm living in a palace, luxury. God's ark of the covenant is living in a tent, like a Boy Scout. Something's wrong with this picture. So I'm proposing to build a temple to honor God. Right? You look, well, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Nathan was so convinced it was a good plan. He said, go and do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. So he gave him his blessing. There's a problem. Neither David nor Nathan had consulted God before they decided that this was a good plan. Verse 4, but God is faithful. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord. Boy, when you hear that, you turn your hearing aid on high. Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? 
For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a tent of cedar or a house of cedar? Here's the principle. When God says no to our way, he is redirecting us to his way, which is always the best way. See, when God says no, many, many times we think, well, he's putting us in a dead end. He says no, no. No is not no in the sense that no is not a dead end. No is a redirection. No is a redeployment. God always has a path he wants you to walk in. When he says no, he's redirecting you to his way, which is always the best way. So God spoke to Nathan that very night and revealed his plan, and his plan was different than David's plan. First Chronicles uh, 22, 8 tells us that God clearly told David no, and he told him why. God said to David in First Chronicles 22, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Now this was not condemnation of David's military victories. I mean, God is the one who called him to be a general, to be a warrior, and to fight Israel's enemy. God was simply saying, David, you're not my choice to build a temple for my glory. David, I called you to be a ruler. I didn't call you to be a builder. And that's important for us to understand. Just because we want to do something doesn't mean that God has called us to do that. God may have plans for your life of which you do not yet know. And understanding what the will of the Lord is, is obviously very, very important. Interesting, God had never commanded anyone to build him a temple. He just told us that. Is God had always lived where? In the tabernacle, right? Which was a portable tent, a movable tent, because God always wanted to be present with his people. And where were they in the wilderness? Moving from campsite to campsite to campsite, for 40 years. So God dwelt in a tent like they were dwelling in tents so he could be with them and present and visible as they, well, they were pilgrims at that point in time as they moved from place to place in the wilderness. Matter of fact, even beyond that, there is no house built with human hands that is ever adequate for the king of glory. Amen? Isaiah 66 says, God says in Isaiah 66, verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? The glory of God is never going to be enhanced by a building. This is what makes the New Testament so amazing. Where does God dwell today? Where is his temple? In you. In me. That is the a wonder that the Lord of glory would call us his, not only his children, but his temple, and he comes to dwell in us. Everything you need in this life and infinitely beyond, you have because you have God himself living in you. Interesting that God did say to David, even though he said, no, you're not the one to build the temple, he said in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 8, because it was in your heart, to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. 
Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you, he shall build the house for my name. So David's motive was good. David's motive was to honor God by building him a house, and God was pleased with David's motive. And notice that God didn't say no to his house. He said no to David. He said not yet to the house, but he did say yes to the son, Solomon, who was going to build the temple. A.T. Pearson, biblical commentator, used to say, disappointments are his appointments. My disappointments are his appointments. When God says no to my way, it's easy to become disappointed, right? God told me no. God said, no, you can't do this, or I don't want you to do this. However, that disappointment becomes the appointment place where I can meet with God and he can show me his way, which is obviously the best way. Our problem is, is we vastly overestimate our wisdom and understanding, and we vastly underestimate God's wisdom and understanding. 1 Corinthians 2.9 gives us just a little perspective on the vastness of God's understanding and plans. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. No matter how great your plans, God's plans are greater. No matter how great your purpose and your schemes and your thoughts and your future orientation and your goals, God's plans are greater. His plans are so much beyond what we can imagine. That's why we are to trust him. So God now has an appointment with David. He's told him no, and that point of disappointment is now God's appointment with David, and he's going to redirect David's perspective. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. By the way, when the Lord says to you, thus says the Lord of hosts, that is your cue to say with Samuel, the prophet, the young boy, speak, Lord, for your servant is escuche, listening, right? When you hear, thus saith the Lord, that's your opportunity to listen with intent to obey. So he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Here's the principle. Never forget what God has saved you from in the past and what he has saved you for in the future. He has saved you from sin and death and hell and destruction and brokenness. And he has saved you for divine purpose, divine relationship, love, fellowship, and eternity. So God begins by recounting his past faithfulness in David's life. By the way, David wasn't great leadership material. He wasn't even leading the sheep. What's it say? He was following the sheep. If you're following sheep and sheep get lost pretty easy, okay, you're not great leadership material at that stage. So God took a nobody from nowhere and over several decades of trials, troubles, and triumphs, God shaped David into a somebody who was doing something that God would bless for all eternity. And that should give us hope. 
The only explanation for David's success in life is the presence of God in his life. Do you have the presence of God in your life? In deeper measure than David did. It said that David, the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come and go depending on the task at hand. You have the Holy Spirit forever. You can't lose him even when you get lost. He's there with you. See, not only is David's position from God, so is ours. Where we are in life comes strictly from him. God has redeemed you and I from the slave market of sin, adopted us into his forever family, set us free to love and serve him forever. What a savior. So God is now going to introduce his great covenant with David. Covenant in Latin is two words. Convenire. Con, V-E-N-I-R-E. Convenire. It means a coming together. Covenant means a coming together. A covenant presupposes two parties that choose to be bound together by an agreed upon series of commitments that define their relationship. Now, human covenants, we have human covenants, and they're bilateral. Human covenants are made between equals, between two people of equal stature, as in friendships, uh, business relationships, political treaties, and the greatest of all bilateral human covenants is marriage, right? That's the greatest of all human covenants. However, God's covenants with humanity are not bilateral. They're unilateral, right? God loves people and he wants a relationship with them. But if you want a relationship with God, on whose terms do you come? His terms. God is the one who writes the terms of a relationship with him. He's the one who writes the conditions. People can accept or reject God's covenant with them, but they can't modify it. You can't say, God, I want a relationship with you, but by the way, I'm coming to you on my terms. I'm getting into heaven on my terms. Not going to work. You want a relationship with the God of glory? You do it on his terms. And he's told us, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God's terms. So some of God's covenants with humanity are unconditional and some are conditional. God's unconditional covenants depend on him alone. God says, I will do this irrespective of what you do. That's an unconditional covenant. Some of God's covenants are conditional. If you do this, then I'll do that. So a conditional covenant means that two people, God and mankind, have to keep their word. Now, we're not worried about God keeping his word, right? But we are, should be, concerned about us keeping our word. So God's made a lot of covenants in history before Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and later on God will make a new covenant through Jesus Christ. At the very beginning in the creation, Genesis 1 and 2, God gives Adam and Eve a series of stipulations that define their relationship with him. What's our relationship with God going to be like? God tells them, here's how you're going to have a relationship with me. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea. And there was another stipulation. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Does that sound conditional or unconditional? That would be conditional. 
If you do this, then this is what happens at that point. And what did Adam and Eve do? Within a matter of probably days, they broke that covenant and Genesis 3 showed up, sin entered the world and ruined everything. It gets worse. So in Genesis 9, God, of course, sent the flood, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And in Genesis 9, God made an unconditional covenant with Noah. And he said, Noah, I will never again flood the earth and destroy it. Never again. That's unconditional. And I'm going to give you a sign to remind you. And that sign is the rainbow. Anytime a rainbow shows up, be reminded that God has made an unconditional promise never to destroy the earth with a flood. God also made an unconditional covenant with Avram, with Abraham in Genesis 12. And that covenant gave the land of Israel to Abraham's descendants forever. That's an unconditional land grant by God to the people of Israel. Regardless of all the political shenanigans that happen on planet earth, that's God's decision. He owns the turf. And he gave it to Abraham's descendants forever. And he promised, furthermore, that the entire world would be blessed through the descendants of Abram's family. He became Abraham later. And the sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. circumcision. Somebody remembers. You were only eight days old when it happened to you, so I don't expect you to remember. Later on in Exodus 19, God makes a covenant with Moses. He gives them the Mosaic covenant on Mount Sinai. And he says, Israel, if you obey my commandments, then you will be my special people. And you can represent me as an ambassador to planet Earth for the rest of the world. Does that sound conditional or unconditional? Very conditional. And of course, Israel routinely, promptly, and on an ongoing basis, uh, didn't keep their end of the bargain. So later on, as recorded in Jeremiah 31, God's going to make a new covenant with mankind based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is between God and David and appoints directly to Messiah. Directly to Messiah. In this chapter, which we're going to dive into right now, God establishes David's family as the perpetual royal line in the nation of Israel and promises that ultimately that royal line will be fulfilled with the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So God makes four promises to David beginning in verse 9. Three of these promises are going to be fulfilled in his lifetime and the last one, of course, will be fulfilled after his death. First, God promises to make a famous reputation for David. Verse 9b, God says, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Second, God promises a homeland for Israel, verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place, a homeland for the nation of Israel. Third thing God promises David, God promises peace and rest from Israel's enemies, verse 10b. You will not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them, Israel, any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now that, in fact, was occurring because David had been given rest by God through his wars at this period of time. Fourth thing, and most important, God promises an everlasting royal dynasty and kingdom for David and his descendants. 
Verse 11. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, this is interesting. David says, I want to build a house for you. And God says, that's not a house. This is a house. I'm going to build a house for you. Here's the principle. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God does for you, in you, and through you. We humans are very impressed with our capacity to do things for God. God, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. I'm going to build you a house, man. I'm going to impress you with my blah, blah, blah. There is nothing we can do for God in our own strength. Now, the word house in this chapter is used 15 times. <clears throat> and it refers to David's palace. It refers to the temple. And most importantly, it refers to David's dynasty, his descendants, including the Messiah. God, or David, wants to make a building for God. God is going to make an everlasting, eternal dynasty for David. The house falls down. The dynasty lasts forever. The house is made out of stone and wood. The dynasty is made out of God's eternal relationship with his people. Which would you rather have? Whose house do you think is more secure? Clearly God's house, right? Now, it's important to understand that this covenant with David is unconditional. God doesn't say to David, if you do this, I'll do this. God says, I will do this, period. So what does this dynasty look like? Well, first thing is David's own flesh and blood are going to occupy his throne after his death, and God's going to secure his kingdom. Look at verse 12. It says, when your days are complete, David doesn't know it, but he's within 10 years of dying. He dies at 70. He's now 60. He doesn't know that, but God does. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now, if you are a king, what concerns you the most is what will happen to my kingdom when I'm gone? God says, I've got that secured. By the way, none of us are kings in that sense, political kings, but we are all parents. And one of our big concerns as parents and grandparents is what will happen to my family dynasty after I'm gone? Because you will be gone someday, right? That's why we battle in prayer for the spiritual development and maturity of our children and grandchildren. And God says to David, I will establish this kingdom. This is a huge promise he's making to David. I've secured the next generation for you. Number two. David's son is going to be the one who builds a house for God, and the royal dynasty of David's family will continue forever. Verse 13 says, He, your son, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And now anytime you see the word forever, you know it's talking beyond just human time and human life, etc. Third thing, David's physical son is going to have an intimate relationship with God himself like a father and a son. Verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now, in royal terminology, a son is far more than just a physical descendant. A son of a king is one who rules on behalf of or in place of his father, right? As kind of a regent, a delegation. 
Adam and Eve ruled over planet Earth. They were kings over planet Earth, but they did so for their heavenly father, right? God gave them that responsibility, that position. As sons and daughters of God, will we rule and reign someday? Yes, forever, it says, we will reign with Christ. So we are his family, we are his children, but we will be given responsibilities that include ruling and reigning. So it, this has a royal decree to it as well. The other application is, God is telling David, your son, Solomon, is going to have a relationship with me, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. You ever wondered how David felt about that? For you and I today, the truth of it is, who do your children belong to? Our children are not our children at the end of the day. They come through us for a short period of time, but they belong to their heavenly father. Far more than they belong to us. And as they're adults, they are parented by God, not us. You understand that? Most of us have a hard time believing that our children don't want our advice. Most of us believe that our advice is really good advice. Our children are not always persuaded that's true. Sometimes perspective causes us to step back and say, maybe that advice wasn't the most sound counsel. So the most important thing as parents you can do for your children is pray for them. Pray for them, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. Pray that they will have a relationship with Almighty God and He will guide their footsteps because He's the perfect parent. He's the perfect father. Fourth thing. This one's hard. David's physical son is going to be disciplined by God when he disobeys God, but God's loyal love will never abandon him. Verse 14b. When your son commits iniquity, David, I'm going to correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness, my chesed, as Pastor Roger talked about this morning, shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Did Solomon sin? Boy, howdy. And God corrected him. With the pain of outside invasion, he had a lot of trouble with that, and rebellion inside the kingdom, but God never took away the right to rule from him. Took it away from his son, partially, but not from him. God's promise to Solomon never depended on Solomon's performance. And that's really good news for us, right? When God disciplines us in love, and when God disciplines our family and our children in love, rule number one, don't get in the way. Get out of the way and let God do what he's going to do. And some of us, God's doing things in the life of our children, our grandchildren, and we don't like it because we see them suffer. Don't get in the way of what God's going to do. Right? Well, how did you and I learn? Mostly through struggle. Don't get in the way of what God wants to do. Let God teach our children and our grandchildren what he wants them to learn. Fifth, David's family dynasty is going to last forever because Jesus Christ is going to come from David's family tree. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 
your throne will be established forever. Verse 17, in accordance with all these words and with all his visions, so Nathan spoke to David. Here's the principle. Our salvation through Messiah's sacrifice was planned from eternity past, promised throughout the Bible, and will be perpetuated forever in heaven. So God's promise to David points directly to the Messiah. Messiah, by the way, means anointed one or, or chosen one. Christos, Christ, is the same word. It's the Greek word for Messiah. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the chosen one. Christ and Messiah, same word, right? Some believe that Christ began his ministry when he was born in Bethlehem. The truth of it is, God's word tells us that Messiah's sacrifice for your and my sin was planned before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, you were on his mind. 1 Peter 1.20 For he, Messiah, Jesus, was chosen before the foundation of the world to pay for your sin and my sin, but he was revealed at the end of the times for you, the saved. I don't know when this occurred, but scripture says before the creation of the universe, Jesus Christ was chosen to be the sin bearer for rebellious humanity who had not yet been created. Now God has a plan and it's an eternal plan. So when you, you and I get struggling with, well, does God know what's going on? He knows precisely what's going on. The Bible also tells us not only was Messiah chosen from before the foundations of the world, so were you and I. Ephesians 1.4 Just as He, God the Father, chose us in Him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You were chosen by God for salvation before you were born. You were chosen by God for salvation before the foundation of the world. Psalm 139 says, He knew your name before you were conceived. Yeah, from eternity past. That should give us tremendous comfort that our salvation is guaranteed from eternity past to return to the future. Now, furthermore, this Messiah that saved us is promised throughout the Bible. In Genesis 3, God declares war on Satan and he promises there's going to be a coming one who's going to destroy Satan. And we learn that this, this Savior is going to be a human Savior because God says in Genesis 3, he's going to be born of the seed of the woman, right? Genesis 12 kind of refines, puts it in a funnel. This funnel's getting more and more focused. God tells Abraham that Messiah is going to come from your line, right? In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies that Messiah is going to be born from the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe. 2 Samuel 7, today's lesson, God tells David, Messiah is going to be born of your family tree. So we have a human Messiah who's going to be born of Abraham's descendants, who's going to be born of the tribe of Judah, which is the great-grandson of Abraham, which is going to be born of the family tree of David. You kind of getting focused in where Messiah is going to show up? Isaiah says, Isaiah, Isaiah says the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. Supernatural. Right? 
And we find out that Micah tells us that where he's going to be born? In Bethlehem. So throughout Scripture, we get increased focus on to where Messiah is going to be born, from which family tree. So our salvation has been planned from eternity past, promised throughout history, and will be perpetuated by God's promise throughout eternity. So this is God's promise to David, and it is magnificent. Anytime God says, I'm going to establish your family tree, and through you I'm going to bring the Messiah that's going to save the world, how do you respond to that? Well, verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? that you have brought me this far. And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all the greatness to let your servant know. Here's the principle. Gratitude is the right response to God's grace. Thank you, Lord, is appropriate 24-7. We should probably begin prayers with praise and worship and thanksgiving before we get to, gimme, 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 gimme. Please, gimme, 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 right? Just sing. So David goes into the temporary tent where the Ark of the Covenant is, and he sits before the Lord in an attitude of prayer, just like a child sits before a parent. David's response to God's grace is one of humble gratitude. He is overwhelmed by God's goodness. And he refers to himself as your servant ten times in these few verses. He doesn't refer to himself as the king. He refers to himself as, Lord, I'm your servant. It was only God's grace that had brought him here from the sheepfolds to the throne. God blesses us, you and I, not based on who we are. Correct? He blesses us based on who he is. How many of us in the room could say, Lord, I deserve where I am today? We do not want what we deserve we want grace. We need mercy, and God gives us both. It's interesting, if you look in your Bibles, you will see the word LORD, L-O-R-D, in all caps. That's the sovereign name of God, Yahweh. That's the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Jacob. The God, that's the name he's known to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. O Lord God, Lord Yahweh, Master, right? David then, after he thanks God, he can't believe that God has taken him from nowhere and brought him thus far. He says in verse 22, For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself, and to do great thing for you and awesome things for your lands before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, 
from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people, Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. What is remarkable is that God really wants a relationship with us. Does that not ever amaze you? I mean, God can have a relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why would he want a relationship with us? What makes us such a good catch? Answer, nothing. He delights in loving us because of who he is. When you study the nation of Israel, the history, and by the way, five-sixths of the Bible is about Israel. The Old Testament is all about Israel. You are struck by the extremes that God went through just to have a relationship with them. Right? We are them. It is so easy to read the Old Testament and you go, I can't believe they just did that. I mean, Moses has been gone 40 days and they build a golden calf and have a sex orgy at the bottom of the mountain that God spoke the law to him from less than 40 days before. From God speaking the law and an earthquake on the mountain to having a sex orgy in 40 days. How stupid can you get? And then you get out of bed, you look in the mirror and you go, them is me. Right? How many of you look back and say, I have been spiritually stupid in the past? We all have, right? Over and over and over again, they reject God. Over and over and over again, they serve idols. Just like a child, they rebel against God, break the heart of their heavenly father. And God, because his mercy is measureless, never abandoned them. He never stopped pursuing them because he never stopped loving them. When you read the Old Testament, you are persuaded, and you certainly see it in the New Testament, that God's love is relentless. How many of you find that loving your children and grandchildren requires relentlessness? Yes. No matter what they do or don't do, you will love them, period. Right? God modeled that for us. And we are called to love in the same way that he loved us. So David is humbly grateful. He is amazed at God's love for the nation and for himself. And then he closes by praying for God's promises to come to pass. Verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever. David doesn't give thanks that God is going to make David's name great. David prays that God's promises will be fulfilled so that God's name will be made great. That's the core, by the way, of effective living and effective praying. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? What did he say? He said, pray like this. Our Father, Abba. Abba means Daddy. Very intimate family relationship between God and God's children, you and me. God is our loving Father, but he lives in Heaven, our Father who art in heaven. So God is exalted above his creation, above his children. He's our Father, intimate love, but he's also our creator, holy and just and righteous. It says, hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. 
May God's name, God's person, God's promises, God's plan be treated as holy, as honored and obeyed. See, it's terribly easy for us to forget who's who. When we pray, most of the time, who's it all about? Really, who's it all about? Most of the time, our praying is self-centered. By the way, bringing our needs to God honors him. So when you say, Lord, I need X, that is not wrong. You honor him when you bring your needs to him because you acknowledge your dependency on him. That is appropriate. But we need to remember who we're talking to. He's not our celestial Santa Claus. He's our king and he's also our father. So there's an intimacy and there's also an awesomeness at the same time. So God, David's motive and David's prayer is for God to be glorified, for God to be the center of everything and not him. So God has made a covenant with David that is, it's probably one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. God has promised the Messiah through his family tree. You know, for you and I, um, I think God blew David's mind. I think he told him some things that in no way, shape, or form could he ever dream what would happen. Now, the truth of it is, if you and I, if the Lord tarries, and let's say he doesn't come back for 100 years, 100 years, you will not only have children and grandchildren, you will have great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren 100 years from now. What will they be doing? What will they be like? Are you praying for the yet unborn descendants in your family tree? Are you praying for your grandchildren's grandchildren? If the Lord doesn't come back, they need your prayers now and they're not even born. Because God is planning for eternity. So we should be praying 100 years into the future. And yet most of the time, we're so time-bound. I mean, we're worried about this afternoon. Oh, Lord, help me decide where to go to lunch today. Give me wisdom. You know. Oh, Lord, what's on the menu? Oh, that tastes good, but it's got too much fat. That's not, you, know, but, you know, be thinking at least part of your prayer life into the distant future, into the eternal future. That's what David is being taught to do because God has made him promises that encompass the generations. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll open it up for some Q&A if you have any thoughts and questions before Tom comes. Here's our summary thoughts. When God says no to our way, he is redirecting us to his way, which is always the best way. We didn't always realize it at the time, but his way is always the best way. Number two, never forget what God has saved you from in the past and what he has saved you for in the future. Thirdly, it's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God does for you, in you, and through you. We can do nothing for him except in his strength. Number four, our salvation is so precious and Messiah's sacrifice is so precious because it was planned from eternity past, promised throughout the Bible, and will be perpetuated forever in heaven. And like David, gratitude is the right response to God's grace Thank you, Lord, is appropriate all the time, every place, in all circumstances. 
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.